Matthew chapter 4 is where we're at. Go ahead and get that out. A, a couple things, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, if this is your first First Wednesday. So if you've never been to a First Wednesday before, uh, they are a little bit different than Sundays. Uh, so what we do on First Wednesdays is we take a whole chapter of the Bible and we, we break down the whole chapter. So uh, we do an exposition or an, or an exegesis, whichever you kind of prefer. Um, but to, so we're going to go just through a full chapter. We're going to preach through a full chapter tonight. And we'll, we'll show you contextually how it looks at other verses. But that's what we're doing. So whereas on Sunday mornings, we may take a topic like faith or love, or something like that, and show you what the Bible says on First Wednesdays, we've taken it upon ourselves to be disciplined, to say, if you're going to move through the Bible, this is how you need to move through the Bible. There's a systematic process that you can honor the Bible with. And so uh, this is just one of the things that we think is important uh, because God asked us to do it. And so we, we, we do this on First Wednesdays. So we'll move through a whole chapter, which would be Matthew chapter 4. Uh, the second thing, I'll be reading from the ESV Bible. You can read from whatever you want to, but I'm reading from the ESV. So if you're using technology like a phone and you want to kind of get word for word with me, the ESV is where you'll want to live. Uh, all right. And so um, you can do that. The next thing, last thing, housekeeping, uh, is that no scriptures will show up on the screen behind me. Okay. Now we do that for a reason because I think Western Christians are lazy. All right. They're like, I don't need to bring my Bible to church. They'll just throw it up on the screen. Not at first Wednesday. Okay, we're not, we don't do it at first Wednesdays because we want to condition you to get that Bible out from under that stack of magazines at your house next to the cookie tin that's got your sewing kit in it. We want you to get that thing out and we want you to start using it and bringing it to church with you. Okay, so all jokes aside, it is a disciplined thing we want to try to lead our people with. And so we encourage on first Wednesdays as best you can. Bring a paper Bible and bring a notebook and write and read the way churches have for the last 2,000 years, all right? And so um, we, we love to do that. All right, let's get into Matthew chapter 4, all right? So before we can go to Matthew chapter 4, I want us to go back just a little bit into Matthew chapter 3 because that's, I want us to see the last thing that happens to Jesus before Matthew chapter 4 starts. That's important because we need to understand that. All right, so we're going to go to Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17. Whose turn is it? It was somebody over here. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, so Matthew, we're going to move through. No, uh, I'm just kidding. Matthew 3, 16 through 17, Jesus is getting baptized, and it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now this is an important thing because what we see is about to happen in Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus is about to get tempted by Satan. So I don't find it odd that Jesus' baptism, but not just his baptism, God's identification, adoration, and affirmation, those three things that fathers do, right? And just if you weren't here last first Wednesday uh, for December, the pillars in which fatherhood is built on is those three things. So if you're a father in here, you need to speak identity into your child. You need to tell them who they are before the world tells them who they are. So you need to tell them who they are. You need to tell them that you love them. Fathers, you, you, so we, we, need to, we need to communicate, we love you. Like, I, I love you. You're, you're my child and I love you. And then affirmation, you need to tell them that you're proud of them. All right? So a lot of your life is spent disciplining, but if you don't nurture the wounds you create, you leave the wounds for someone else to fix. So uh, as fathers, if you'll identify, uh, adore, or show affection to, 
uh, and if you'll affirm, then you will create a child who is much more prepared for the world ahead. How many of you right now will acknowledge, for those of you that had fathers that didn't do that, if they would have, it would have changed the trajectory of your life. And so that's why those things are important. Anyways, God does it to Christ the Son. And if God did it to Jesus, you definitely can do it to Samuel or Philip or whatever your kid's name is. All right? So just learn that. The moment when God instills identity, gives you affection, solidifies the affirmation in your life, it is a great indicator. So this is the important thing I want you to understand as we get into this. The moment that God does show up in your life, and the moment that God does come on the scene and he has these moments, like a moment like tonight. Right, where, where God is doing something, he's showing affection to you and he's touching your heart. Or he's, he's ministering to you as he's bringing you to a place where he's reminding you that he's got you. And right, all of those things, I do want you to understand something, and this is important because I think we've lost this in the church nowadays. You need to understand where God shows up in big moments, the enemy is planning another one. So people come to us all the time and they come, like, for example, people will come off the mission field. Right, We had teams coming back from Peru and the Dominican this year, and they get back from the mission field, and all hell's breaking loose in their life. And it's like, yeah, bro, that's what happens. When, when you get close to God, the enemy is going to set a plan in motion and bring you away from God. That's how these things work. And so we have to be prepared. When you have great, grand moments with the Lord, don't think that the enemy is going to rest on his time and not think he has something to do about that. And so we literally see in Matthew 3, he comes, and so I just want to encourage you today, great spiritual battles follow moments of great spiritual clarity. I'm going to say it again. Great spiritual battles follow moments of great spiritual clarity. When you, see it, when you feel like you've seen God like you've never seen him before, you're about to get your head knocked sideways at some point. It's going to be at your job. It's going to be, and listen, I don't say that to scare you. I say that just to prepare you. So literally, uh, when I was young in ministry and I was getting opportunities, Pastor Dan would say, you're going to preach on this Sunday. And I was preaching on that Sunday. Something that I was in charge of at the church would go wrong. And literally me and Kyle, our production director, he, he's here. Uh, me, me and Kyle, we had a saying, and it was just this. That makes sense. Like literally something would go, I'm talking like, oh, the whole sanctuary flooded at the old church. Of course it would happen on the Sunday I have to preach. It's like, that makes sense. You know I mean, it's like all the power is not working. That makes sense. Like, it's a big Sunday, and we're, we're kicking off something great. That makes sense. We had a monumental Sunday here at the church, and the whole power went out in the whole building. That makes sense. And I just want to prepare you. What, instead of freaking out, what if you could take the, it's like, all right, me and God, I, if things are going well right now, that means the enemy's plotting. And when he shows up, my posture's not going to be, oh, my gosh, I, God, have you forgotten me? It's just going to be like, that makes sense. Because it's a reminder I'm going on the right direction. Like, oh, cool, cool, cool. The enemy's showing up, that means he's got something to worry about. Right? And what if that was our posture instead of just going to God, like, I can't believe you would do this to me. And that should be our posture. So I want to jump into chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go there. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now I want you to circle or highlight a few words there. Jesus was led by who? The Spirit. Highlight that. Into the where? So wait a second. You mean the Spirit of God would take us to dry places? So some of us need, this is already an indicator. Some of you need to turn off your favorite preacher that tells you God would never take you to an isolated place to be alone. So he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be what? 
Not encouraged in Jesus' name? By the who? Okay, there's a lot happening in verse 1. So, (laughs) Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I have a problem with this already. So what, what is God showing us? Number one, I need you, you need to understand this. The Spirit leads us into wilderness moments. We need to understand that what, what is happening here. The Spirit's leading Jesus into wilderness moments, and we have to understand the same thing can happen to us. The Spirit will lead us into wilderness moments. But listen to me. I want you to grab a hold of this. The wilderness is not spiritual abandonment. It's the opportunity for spiritual discipline. I'm going to say it again. The wilderness is not spiritual abandonment. It's the opportunity for spiritual discipline. So here's how many Christians like to act when they get in the wilderness. We go into a dry spell. We get into a season. I can't hear God. I don't feel God. I don't even know if I want to go to church anymore. We're, getting, we're in that whole season. And so what do we do? Man, if I, I can't hear God, I can't feel God, I'm just going to wild out. I'm just going to live my life. If God don't want to be close to me, I don't want to be close to God. What, what if the reality is the wilderness is a test of your discipline, not a test of God's proximity? Just because heaven went silent doesn't mean heaven's far away. And have you ever taken a test before? Was the teacher in the classroom? So just because he wasn't talking doesn't mean he wasn't present. So what we have to learn in our lives is that the wilderness is not spiritual abandonment. Just because you're going through a season where you can't hear God and feel God doesn't mean God's not present. It's the opportunity for spiritual discipline. That's why James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. Nope. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some translations say perseverance. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Meaning, a faith that is not tested is not worth anything. So, so when we're going through wilderness journeys and we are tempted or we are tested and then we find ourselves in those places... And we trust God even though we don't feel God. We are proving that we are complete because we no longer need what the wilderness offers because we have who we need in the middle of the wilderness. But here's the thing. I just want to help you out for a second. What is the difference between tempting and testing? What is the difference between tempting and testing? Well, I want to help you for a second. The devil tempts you. God tests you. So the devil tempts you. God tests you. They say, Brad, how do I know the difference? I'm glad you asked. A temptation is always the opportunity for you to fail. A test is always an opportunity for you to succeed. A temptation is always an opportunity for you to be pulled from God. A test is always an opportunity for you to be brought closer to God. So if you fail the test, you're not farther from God. You're just where you were. But if you fail at the temptation, you, are, you feel farther from God because condemnation sets in. And so when God tests us, what is he doing? He's testing our faith for perseverance sake. And when we are successful, when we come through it, we're complete, lacking nothing. But when, he, when the enemy tempts us, he's trying to create a stumbling block that would make us fall away from God. Does that make sense? So Jesus is brought to the wilderness to be what? Not tested, 
tempted. And so we pick up in verse 2. We're going to read verses 2 through 4. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, my man was hungry. In Jesus' name. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want to point out something interesting. First of all, my man was hungry. I think it's interesting that the enemy shows up in our hour of weakness. So, so when you came out of the greatest church service you've ever been in, or when you just brought your friend to Jesus through the gospel, that's probably not when the enemy is going to show up. But when your kid has got on your last ever loving nerve and you're ready to quit your job because your boss has just done that thing again and you're right and you pulled up to the gas station and they got yellow things on the pumps. That drives me crazy. (laughs) This was the gas station I was trying to get to and I can't get gas now. I got to go to the one that I don't never go to. Anyways. All right. Sorry. I just had to get that off my chest. That is when the enemy shows up. You're with me today. And, but let's be real. I, I, isn't it so interesting how the enemy, he doesn't, he doesn't come and throw you off a cliff. He comes to the cliff you're already leaning off of and just, just gives you that last little nudge you needed to blow up. And then what do you tell everybody after you had an anger fit? Man, that's not really me. No, 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 it's you. It is most definitely you. It's just the you you've had under control, right? So the enemy shows up and he's testing. Listen to me. When your flesh is weak, so your spirit is too. And so he shows up. But listen to what the enemy says. He says these words. And I wanna, the reason I want to show, show you a, a mirror that's happening in Matthew 4 that also happened in Genesis 3. So when God created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. We all know that story, right? Okay, so, so when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, I want to show you that the enemy does to Jesus exactly what he did to Eve. And the reason I want to show you this is to show you that the enemy's tactics haven't changed, his subjects have. And if we understand where he's coming from and how he's aiming to tempt us, then we have a better chance to stand against it. Okay, and so let's look at what he does. What's the first thing he says to Jesus? If you are the son of God. He doesn't say since you are, does he? If you're the son of God, then tell these rocks to turn into bread. Let these stones become bread. And what is he doing? In this moment, he's challenging his flesh. In Genesis 3.1, now the serpent, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it quickly. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? What is he doing? He's sowing doubt into the mind of the follower. See, sin doesn't start at the moment of action. It starts at the moment we question God's right to govern our lives. See, sin didn't start when Eve ate the fruit. Sin started when she questioned God's right to govern her life and tell her what she should and should not have. And so the enemy is testing or tempting Jesus. If you are the son of God, then just just prove it. You see, God's, I don't think God's word is true. Go ahead and prove that you're the son of God. And Jesus doesn't 
not only does he not prove it, but what does he respond to him with, right? He responds to him with the word, which we're going to look at. Verse 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. You see, what is Satan tempting right now? He's tempting Jesus' flesh. So I want to give you the three areas that he shows up in. Satan comes to tempt us in our flesh. He comes to tempt us in our spirit. And he comes to tempt us in our soul. I'm not necessarily going to dive into like a triune subject uh, of human body, but I just want you to bear with me for a second. So he comes to test our flesh, comes to test our spirit, and then he comes to test our soul. And another word I want to put at first soul is ambition. I'm going to show you how these three things show up, all right? And so man should not live on bread alone. But what is bread? Bread is the thing that you think you need more than God right now. So it's not by your self-nourishment. It's not by fulfilling our wants. It's not by chasing after uh, what we think we need. It's not by pursuing our dreams or obtaining temporary desires. Listen, you will live by the word of God in your life. And this is why I think so many Christians are feeling spiritually malnourished because we love the experience of Sunday morning, but we lack the bread of our life. Like daily bread in our life. Like if if you're not taking this in daily, that means you're taking in a whole lot of something else daily. And listen, we're all guilty of missing, like of not, you know what I mean? Like woke up late, whatever. But I'm saying if you're not trying to make it a regular pattern, you're trying to live by your own self-nourishment and not by what God has provided. And we need it. It's not even me trying to beat you up, make you feel guilty, none of those things. I'm trying to help you understand we need this. We need it in our lives. So Satan is tempting his flesh. And what is Jesus' response? The word. So let's go to verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are, there it is again, isn't it? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, this part is interesting because Oh, sorry, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Now, this part is interesting because he looks at him, he says, if you are the Son of God. So what he's doing? He's questioning the word again. And Satan tries to use this time, he tries to use the word of God as a means to tempt the Son of God. I'm going to say that again in case y'all didn't get it. He tries to use the word of God as a means to tempt the Son of God. And then this is very interesting because, listen to me, the enemy will always try to distort what he cannot remove. And this is important because I think there's a lot of people that know their Bible for Instagram. They don't know it for real. And so they know it enough to post it when they feel like it's the right context, but they don't really know what it says. And that's why it's important that we know what it says because you got to know the truth. Because the enemy, listen to me, the, the one that knows your Bible better than you is Satan himself. So you, we have to know what it means, but by the word of God. So, so what is happening now? Satan actually quotes Isaiah to Jesus. So Isaiah 9-2 is literally what he quotes, where he, he says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you not strike your foot. He's quoting 
the very Bible back to Jesus, but he's distorting it so that he could cause Jesus to only see what he wants him to see, not what Jesus actually sees. And I think this is one of the great tricks of the enemy where, this, where Satan comes into our lives and we say, no, 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 I'm standing on the word of God. So then what do we do? What does he do? He comes in to distort the word that we're standing on to make it mean what it never meant. Listen to me. Things that weren't okay 2,000 years ago aren't okay now. It's, it's plain. You don't have to love it. There are there's parts of the Bible I don't like. But it is what it is. It says what it says. And again, we're going back to Eve. What was the great tragedy? She didn't believe God had the right to govern her life. So what does he show up to? He will convince you to do what so many are trying to do in the 21st century. Reword and distort God's word to mean what it never meant before. Listen, let me help you something. With 2,000 years of church history, and in the Old Testament, we're talking 10,000 years of accuracy with all the proven manuscripts that we've obtained over the last few hundred years, thousands of manuscripts to compare over the last two millennia to understand what the Bible really meant to say. If you're following somebody on TikTok that thinks they found it to mean something different in the last two years than every scholar ever has in the last 2,000 years, you might just need to unfollow. Because <laughs> it's not there. That's not what it says, right? We're not finding new data for the Bible. We're finding more data to prove what the Bible has always said. Okay? So what does, he, what does he do? He comes in and tries to take the word of God and distort it, but he did it again. He did it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did God say? If you eat of the fruit, you'll die. What does the enemy say? You won't die. What God knows is that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. What did he do? He took God's word and just moved it enough. Because the enemy, for, for, for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that are in Christ, we want to stand on the word of God. So he says, I'm not going to try to get you to, re, to refute the word of God. I'm just going to change it enough that you feel comfortable still being in your sin while trying to be saved. Verse 7, his response, Jesus said to him, again, what it is written. Jesus doesn't bring anything to Satan new. He gives him the same thing again. No, 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 no. Again, it is written. Right? You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Again, verse 8, so let's go there. 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms. Say all the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. I love that part. But what does it say after that? For it is written. You notice how Jesus keeps coming back to the same thing over and over again. Listen, you don't need a new word for your life. You just need the word for your life. So like for, for any of you that are like hyper-Pentecostal, I grew up in Pentecostalism. I'm not against it. I praise God for my upbringing. I feel like it connected me to the Holy Spirit in a way that I probably wouldn't have had in other environments. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. 
but for some people, they're chasing new words rather than just going back to the old one. You don't need a new revelation of God. You just need to get back to the revelation that comes from his scripture. Right? And so uh, he, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, I think this is interesting because Satan comes on the scene and he promises him all the kingdoms, like all the king, everything on this earth can be yours. Like you can have all the kingdoms. The enemy wants to tempt you to serve him, to obtain temporarily what has been promised to you eternally. I'm going to say it again. He comes to offer you temporarily what's already been promised to you eternally. In other words, he's coming to you saying, if you'll just come over here. like Think of the life you could have if you abandoned Jesus and went after these things. But for some of us, we've already made that decision. We know we want Jesus more than we want anything else, right? So he says, fine, keep Jesus. But what if you could have this job and this income and this house and these things? What, what if you could have this kind of marriage or this kind of relationship or these friends? Or what if you could, what if you could live in these environments? What if you could do all this? Yeah, yeah. You would still have Jesus. You wouldn't have a life that represents Jesus, which I'm not saying big houses and cars mean you don't represent Jesus. I'm talking about when we sell out our faith so that we can obtain things, just so we're clear, okay? But as you, what what if the enemy comes in and he starts causing you to, to sell your faith for everything that this world has to offer. But here's the thing. What if you, leave, you live 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, and you could have all the things for 60, 70, 80 years? Is it worth having it for 60 years to lose it for all eternity? Which is what the writer meant when he said, what is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? All the kingdoms can be yours. And I think one of the great temptations we all fall into is to trade what could be for what's right now. To trade what could be with the king for what's right now with the peasants. And so what is God challenging us with to look at in this? And if you do think Satan was going to tempt Jesus with this, don't you think he would tempt you with it too? So quick recap He tempts Jesus' flesh, make these stones bread. He tempts his spirit by using the word of God. And then he tempts his ambition, his soul, his his drive by saying, I'll make you ruler over everything. And listen to me, it's the same thing the enemy did in the garden, the same thing he did to Jesus in Matthew 4, and it's the same thing he's doing to us now. If he can't get your flesh, he goes after your spirit. If he can't get your spirit, he goes after your ambition and your soul. And then he gets on a cycle of constantly pursuing those things. And when you look at Genesis 3, 6 through 8, I want to read this. It's a longer text, but just bear with me. So women, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, fellas. It was their fault. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord 
among the trees of the garden because their desire for what they wanted overrode their desire for what God wanted for them. And the moment that it happened, they became consumed with shame and they hid from the Lord. And it's the same thing the enemy does right now. Think about this for a second. When you sin, how do you feel? For those of us that are in Christ, for real. There may be some of you, you're like, I don't love Jesus. And you're like, I sin, I feel great. All right. The Bible says it's fun for a season, but it will get you. So, but for those of us in Christ, let's be honest, inward reflection for a second. How do you feel when you sin? Right? As my niece says, icky. Right? I feel icky. So, you feel icky. So what does the ickiness cause you to do? Hide. Someone said it, right? Hide. Shame, shame sets in, right? But what does the shame cause you to do? Oftentimes it causes you to sin even more, right? If I'm here, I might as well. Come on, anybody ever hit one of those before? Come on, be honest. Don't be like that. Y'all know if I'm here, I might as well, you know, turn up. Church is on Sunday, <laughs> you know? Oh, y'all not? Okay, all right. Some of y'all are with me. The rest of y'all are liars. So we, so we sin, but because we sinned more, what do we feel more of? Shame. But now we feel more shame, so what do we do more of? See how the enemy's got us trapped now? And if we don't break out of the cycle, we sit in this constant state of sin and shame. And the enemy is perfectly content keeping us right there. And so what we have to do is recognize that we are here to serve Jesus, to, to come back to the word. Listen, your temptation is always overridden by being in the word. Your temptation is overridden by being in the word. So listen, some of y'all that are dating, you just need to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John between y'all two. I'm talking about I just set it down right there. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a youth pastor joke. All right, so uh, yeah, better make room for the Holy Ghost. All right, anyways, some of y'all grew up in church. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. We're going to Christian school dances. Y'all but I can't fit a Bible in there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John better fit right in. Anyways. What I think is so interesting about this part of the story, though, is how Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Like this last part, Satan was literally inviting Jesus to make the same mistake Satan made in heaven and the fallen angels. Like think about this for a second. Worship me and I'll give you all of this. What, what is it that Satan told the angels in heaven? Lucifer at the time. What did he tell? Worship me. We'll rule this whole thing. And they all got kicked out of heaven. And he's telling Jesus to do the same thing that Jesus already saw happen to him. Like, like if you were going to be like, hey, come follow me. We're going to do this thing. And the last time you did it, you got hit by a bus. I'm not going this time. <laughs> I'm going to be like, nah, nah, you got that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, come on. It'll be fun to dance in the highway. Like, like nah, I'm not, not doing it. Like, and that's what Satan's coming. He's like, bow to me. And, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about Jesus' response to him. Like, brother, I was in heaven when you got kicked out. I saw it happen. He says in the script, I saw you fall like lightning. I'm not going to do that. For it is written. And what does he do? He keeps coming back to the same thing over and over again. Because here in this moment, hear me, 
Satan is not just tempting the God of all creation. He's tempting the man who became, or the God who became flesh as well. And in each one of us, in our flesh, is this desire to drive, to obtain, to accomplish, right? To, to, to own, to build. And we have to understand that if that thing ever becomes the motivator by who become who we are, then we've now let that thing become our God. And if we're not careful, we may be trying to build the life that God never wanted for us in the first place. We may be looking to obtain all the kingdoms but for the wrong person. Listen, I, I, I will, I'll have to tell you this as a pastor. I have to check this all the time. Because it's so easy to put the Jesus label on ambition as a pastor. We're going to take the world for Jesus and know dang well my name's attached to it. Me and Pastor Justin talk about this often. About where the line is between godly ambition and fleshly ambition. And I, don't, I wish I could tell you where that line was. I don't know. I think I dance it a lot. That's why one of my prayers constantly is, God, don't let this be about me. You can't see them, but in our booth, in the back, and on each side of our platform is a poster. It says, it's a privilege to be on this stage. Thank you, God, for choosing me. And every worship team member and every, every one of us that preach before we and even transition, all this, and before we walk out on this platform, that's our play like a champion poster. We give it a little double tap. I put my hand on it. Thank you, God. Don't let today be about me. Let it be about you. Why? Because I have to constantly remind myself, it's so easy. We're going to do all this for Jesus. But Jesus' name is not going to be in the papers if we get a good article. Hoping for those. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) There's a part of me that knows Brad Livingston is attached to this. Can I I be honest with you all for a second? Because I want to help you feel okay about recognizing it's okay to be ambitious it's not okay to let it be your God. And even if you're doing it for good reasons, don't sell your soul for all the kingdoms that the enemy has to offer. Be ambitious for the right reasons. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know where the line is on that. I can't help you there because I'm, I think, all, I think that's a, a, the constant battle for all of us. But I want to encourage you to, to, to commit to not selling your soul for all the kingdoms. Don't fall into that, into that trap. The other thing that I love <laughs> is that Satan was tempting Jesus to take dominion over everything he already has dominion over. Now, I think this is real, <laughs> I think this is real interesting. Now, obviously, he was tempting like the flesh of Jesus, but he's also still God divine, like the hypostatic union. He's 100% God, 100% man. And so here he is, present, the Son of God, takes on flesh. And so I think it's so interesting. He's like, you can have all the kingdoms. And Jesus is like, brother, I have all the kingdoms. Like, they all belong to me. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him, right, are all things to him be the glory forever. That means the kingdoms already belong to me. Now, Romans 11 hasn't been wrote yet, but that's not the point, right? He's like, for from him, for from me and through him and to him, right? But John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? Jesus, right? The word became flesh. So what happened? In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was Christ. In the beginning was the Son. 
And he was with God and he was God. And so since he was in the beginning, there's nothing that Satan has to offer him that he doesn't already own himself. But to take it a little bit further, John 1, 3, through him all things were made, right? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So every kingdom that's ever been made was made through Christ, which means every kingdom of your life that you think you've earned all by yourself exists because Jesus placed it into your life. So all you're doing is stewarding what he's given you, not owning what he lets you borrow. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word God there comes from the, the Hebrew word Elohim. And any time there's an I am attached to a Hebrew word, it makes it plural. So Elohim is a plural noun for God, which means in the beginning, gods, the gods. In the beginning were the three, the Trinity. In the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. What happened? In the beginning, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Son, created the heavens and the earth. And since, since in the beginning, they all three were present, in the beginning was Christ. And so as Jesus is tempting, or as Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus is literally responding going, I was there when we poured the foundation those things are built on. They weren't built by human hands. I knew they were coming. Nothing exists on this earth that I didn't put here. Nothing will exist on this earth that I don't allow here. It is by my word that everything exists. And so since it exists by my word, I won't bow to you for taking back the very thing I already own going to tempt me with my own toys. <laughs> Got me messed up. What is Satan tempting, though? His soul. Because Jesus was still man. And that's one of Matthew's great desires to point out to us. And, and also, again, in other Gospels, is Jesus, Christ's humanity. He was tempted the way you were tempted. His flesh was weak. He didn't eat for 40 days. His spirit was weak because your spirit's weak when your flesh is weak. His soul, his ambition was weak. He was the king of kings, yet he took the humble place as a servant. So he went from the highest of high to the lowest of low. The God of all creation becomes a baby in a manger, not in a palace, not in a kingdom. So he takes the highest of high, comes to the lowest of low, and you don't think the enemy wasn't going to try to use that against him? To remind him, you can have all the kingdoms now. And Jesus says, I only got a little bit more time left here. It may not, it may not look like I'm ruling them, but trust me, baby, I'm ruling them. That's not, that's not how it was written, but that's how I read it. That's the BLV right there, the Brad Livingston version. So, Verse 11, we'll move through this last part a little bit quickly. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I think this is interesting. Did you notice the devil did not leave at his command. He left at his discipline and faithfulness. Now don't get me wrong, it is biblical to take your stand against the enemy. But you do it through discipline and faithfulness. So again, hyper-Pentecostalism. Just cast that devil out. Tell him to leave. And if, and if the devil's still here, you did it wrong. Some of y'all didn't come from that camp. Let me help y'all out for a little. In some camps, if you do something that they told you to do that may, not, may or may not be in the Bible... 
but it didn't work, you don't have enough faith. Or you pray for that person to get healed and they didn't get healed, you need more faith. No, honey, maybe it's not God's plan to heal that person. Because there's plenty of examples in the Bible where it says he went through healed many, but not all. So, so you just need to tell that devil to go and he'll leave you alone. Hmm? Or maybe he'll hang out for a while because he's only tested your flesh, but he hasn't got to your spirit yet. Maybe you need to endure. Maybe you need to get through the process. Maybe you need to come to completion with what Maybe the enemy has a plan, and he's not going to depart before his plan is over, but praise God, you have discipline and faithfulness in the God who overrides your enemy. So again, I don't say this to discourage you. I say it to encourage you and not to buy into the lie that you can manifest things into existence. Just tell the enemy to go. Some of y'all are like, I've been telling him to go. I have told him to go every day for the last three weeks. <laughs> And I swear this mug is still here. Because maybe what God wants to see out of you is your discipline and your faithfulness. That is only confirmed in your testing and your tempting. Like Jesus did. So the devil left. We go to verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has Dawned, And I think it's so interesting that what Isaiah is saying here, they don't even understand what it means yet. But the prophet is saying in the middle of the darkness that the Gentiles live in, which means being far from God, in their spiritual darkness, a light has shown up. And that's exactly what Jesus is walking into the land of Capernaum. So as he walks into Galilee, he's literally fulfilling what Isaiah said would happen. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Now, we go to verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I have a question about this. Because he didn't exactly have a good shark tank pitch. Follow me. Anything else, man? Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I don't even know what that means. But I think that it's interesting that at this not request, command. Not would you follow me? Is there a question mark? Follow me. Now, those two words said by anyone else, have no power. 
Matter of fact, if you said that to me, I'm probably not going to follow you because you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do. Y'all know anybody else? Anybody else? Follow me. Nah, bro. Even if I wanted to go, I'm not now. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Two words. Follow me. What is it about this man that can say two words that would cause four men to change the trajectory of their professional, personal, spiritual lives? What is so special about this man that two words can literally change everything? Follow me. And my question is, maybe it's something deeper than a command. Maybe it's something deeper than just two words. I think it's a revelation. It's not the words of the man, it's the revelation of the man. It's it's Jesus. A revelation of Christ is as necessary as a proclamation of Christ. Let's say it again. A revelation of Christ is as necessary as a proclamation of Christ. Now this is an important distinction because there are plenty of people who have believed Jesus walked this earth, they do not believe he is God. They've received the proclamation, they've denied the revelation. for four men to change their life, for four men to walk away from their profession. These aren't men that took up fishing in their 40s as a hobby. These are men that all they know is fishing. They can catch fish when no one else can catch fish. They got all the right spots. They have generations of their profession. Let me put this in terms you might understand. They're fully committed to the degree, the schooling, the education. They paid for their master's and their PhD. In this degree field, they are committed. They are going in that direction. They have committed to their career field. They are in it, man. We know what our life looks like for the next 60 years until we die. And two words changed everything. Follow. Because a revelation that God is standing right in front of you will never be denied. That's why for some of you, your friends can't understand this new life you live. Because they may have heard it, but they don't live it yet. Before them stood a man, but didn't stand a God. They may have bought into all the kingdoms or the stones becoming bread. They may have bought into ambition or their fleshly desires more than the one that says, follow me. Follow me. I'll give you everything your spirit ever needed. Follow me. And I'll walk you through the gates of heaven. Follow me. 
and watch everything you go through on this earth become worth it at the end. Follow me. Lay down your nets. Lay down your boat. Say goodbye to the ones you love most. Your life belongs to me now. Follow me. Let's make that personal. Lay down your degree. Lay down your education. Lay down your career. Lay down, lay down everything that you have served as your God. And follow him. Now the good part is, in this life, when he asks us to lay things down, he also gives us permission to pick up what he wants for us for this life. So don't everyone go quitting your jobs tomorrow, just so we're clear. But listen to me, and I, I just, I feel like this is a word from the Holy Spirit right now for at least one person in here, if not more. That promotion and that job opportunity you're getting right now is an all the kingdoms of the world offer. And it's gonna take you away from everything you've built and everything God's built with you over the last year or two that's changed your spiritual trajectory. And you need to make sure you say yes to the right thing and not the wrong thing. Hear me as a pastor and a shepherd tonight. It's always better to follow him than have all the kingdoms of the world. I'm not saying every promotion is a bad thing. I hope you hear what I'm saying tonight. I'm not saying God can't put great things in front of you. Some, of, some people in this room right now are CEOs. I'm looking at, I, I can see right now, CEOs and CFOs of big companies in this room right now. So I'm not saying God can't give you great opportunities. I'm saying if it's going to cost you your spiritual walk, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. In 2 Corinthians 4, I'm not going to read this whole passage for the sake of time. In 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about to unbelievers, their eyes have been veiled and they cannot see the gospel for what it is. So it literally said, let's just read it. I just, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use this deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So he's talking about how we live our lives, all right? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What 2 Corinthians is saying 
is if you don't have the revelation, you can hear Jesus all day long, but you'll never believe. There's a veil over the eyes. You have to have that revelation. And he goes on in verse 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I want to stop there for a second. And it says, in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I have a question. What is the gospel? Pipeline students, this is your moment right now. You've, I beat you over the head with this for nine months. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus came, died for our sins, paid for our sins, right? Like we are, yeah. <clears throat> so here's my question. How is Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom if he hasn't died yet? So what is the gospel of the kingdom of God if the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins? So what is the good news of the kingdom if it's not the gospel we know it to be yet? What is, so what is the gospel that Jesus is preaching? And is it different than our gospel that he died for our sins? Is it different? No. What is he preaching? He's preaching what they knew about the good news of the kingdom already. And it's something I think we've forgotten as time has progressed as Christians. And that is that there is a kingdom that will be established that for all those who submitted to the king of kings will live in the reigning kingdom. He is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He is coming back to take dominion. He is coming back to rule with authority. He is coming back to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. The Messiah will return, and when he returns, he's not coming back on a cold. He's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back with authority to establish his kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is the one who rules and reigns is coming back to rule and reign. And he's not just coming back to rule and reign in our hearts like he is now. He's coming back to take us with him to rule and reign for all eternity so that we can be with him forever and ever. The good news, the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus isn't done yet. And whatever you're living right now doesn't compare to the weight of glory that is coming. And so we can be excited and we can be nourished and we can be filled and we can trust that everything that God has coming for us is leading us to the ultimate day where we get to be with him forever in his kingdom as he reigns. And we get to be there, not just as subjects, not just as those that bow down, but we get to worship the king of kings for all eternity. We get to cry out holy, holy, holy. We get to love on him forever for what he did for us. The gospel of the kingdom, the goodness of the kingdom is that it's not just that we get to be subjects, it's that we get to worship him for all eternity. The good news, the gospel of the kingdom is that the king is coming and listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you think you can be the king of your life and still serve the king of all eternity, you are mistaken. If you think you can live however you want to live and still belong to the king, listen to me, listen to me as we wrap up. Follow me means just that. Follow me. Lay it all down and follow me. And he finishes 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Because they know, they saw what we know, and that's that Jesus is God. So my invitation to you as we kick off this year, follow him. Resist the enemy with the word at every turn and follow him. Let's stand tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that it's your word that lets us resist the enemy. We thank you that it's your word that we can stand on. We thank you it's your word that makes a proclamation that even wilderness times, it doesn't mean that you're not with us. God, I pray that those two words, follow me, would be a revelation to walk away from the life that we lived or are living and to pursue you and you only. Thank you that we trust you. Thank you that we love you. Thank you that we can lean on you. Let this year be a year where we follow you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys have a fantastic night.